Welcome to another episode of The Vast Majority. I am Jack Benz Micah Utrecht, joined by Megan Day. Hello, Megan. Hello, Micah. How are you? I'm fine. I'm, I seem to be in, in at least in uh, physically better shape than you. The listeners can't see it, but you've got a giant uh, bandage on your finger. Yeah, I had a big old, big old kitchen accident last night. But you know what? I'm despite the fact that I'm injured and I have a tourniquet wrapped around my appendage, I showed up and did this because I'm a troop. You are a true troop in the in the class war for the for the socialist partisans. Did you have any experiences when you cut your finger uh, of like you know? I mean, I know this makes for like a a, a good socialist podcast anecdote but when i was hit by a car on my bike last year this is my honest to god reaction i got hit by the car and i landed on the ground and i was in a lot of pain and as soon as the guy who hit me on his car helped me to my feet the first thing i thought of was oh shit like i just got hit by a car should probably call an ambulance but i have no idea how expensive the ambulance is going to be i don't know how much all my medical care is going to cost and that uh honestly like factored into the uh my my decision not to uh seek medical immediate medical attention uh for my accident did you have that same feeling yeah i mean the first thing that happened was that i for the record this is not like a uh, like a scratch this is a very deep cut it required stitches and it was very alarming uh when it happened and um you know we had this uh conversation where i'm feeling lightheaded i'm like losing a lot of blood actually and i'm just like gotta find a place that's in network here's my insurance card first thing that happened was i like hobbled into the other room bleeding and like pulled out my insurance card and we got to work um making sure that we weren't gonna you know end up somewhere that was going to be a problem and then i also had this as we were driving over me and my partner she's not insured yet because she just you know got a new job and she's not enrolled yet and these these are the kinds of things that happen and i was just like man i'm glad it's i'm glad it's me and not her right um but it could have been either of us obviously because you know, we take turns doing dishes. There's an equitable division of household labor. Uh, glad to hear it. Uh, although maybe you'll get out of having to do dishes for a while now that you've suffered this injury. Imagine if this was all an elaborate scheme to get out of doing dishes. Anyway, we should talk about other things. We should talk about, um, you know, what we're gonna do about the Democratic Party. How we're gonna how we're gonna relate to them as socialists in the coming years, given that we have a window of opportunity that we must seize, and that the future literally depends on it. I'm so glad that you suggested that because that is the topic of our conversation today <laughs> with Jared Abbott. Jared is a regular contributor to Jacobin and to our journal Catalyst, and he has an article in the new print issue of Jacobin after Bernie that is called The Two Paths of Democratic Socialism, Coalition and Confrontation. And he, as you'll hear in the conversation, is not really advocating for one or the other, you know, making a blanket advocacy for one or the other. In fact, he's written in uh, Catalyst and in Jacobin making the case for a more confrontational approach. But he, he's just very thoughtfully laying out sort of what's at stake, what are we risking by engaging in the other, you know, in one strategy or the other, uh, what do we stand to gain if we're successful with them. Uh, and it's just sort of a, a really basic question uh, of, of thinking you know thinking for thinking about what our strategy for the this newly reborn socialist movement is going to look like in the years to come the conversation that we just had is between three proponents of the confrontational strategy who are genuinely trying to figure out when it's necessary to be in coalition and to not be too confrontational so that's that's interesting i also he he makes the point early on that that these categories are not really fixed. Of course, the the proponents of the coalitional strategy would advocate for some, you know, con open conflict. And people like us, the confrontational people, would certainly advocate for, you know, an appropriate level of coalition building. And I, I really like this, actually, though. I like the fact that he separated them out, even though they're not rigid categories. It kind of reminds me of Eric Olin Wright's class maps. He's, like, always schematizing things, and they're never perfect, and there are always edge cases, and it's, like, clear that it doesn't actually perfectly describe the whole universe or ecosystem of class. And yet the fact that he's schematizing them and separating them out and making 
making them discrete categories forces my brain to work in a different way. And so I had the same experience with reading Jared's article. Yeah, well, uh, Eric Olin Wright was always famous for the two by two tables. Uh, we don't we don't get that from Jared. We just get a uh, just a column like pros and cons. Yeah, I have a simple brain. This is best for me to be able to understand what's going on here. Uh, so Jared is a longtime democratic socialist activist. Uh, he is also a postdoctoral research fellow at the Center for Inter-American Policy and Research at Tulane University in New Orleans. Um, I'll link to uh, this article that is in the new print issue in Jacobin, as well as his article in Catalyst, uh, and also to he, one article that he mentions by Adam Hilton about uh, the new politics movement within the Democratic Party in the 60s and 70s. So uh, with that, here's our conversation with Jared. Jared, welcome. Hi. So let's just start out with you laying out your description of uh, what the two paths uh, of democratic socialism going forward in the, in the United States are. What, what are the two paths? The piece is, is a little bit schematic, and so I don't want to overdo it. And this is something we can talk about that, you know, these are not black and white categories. Um, and in fact, they sort of uh, contain multiple elements that you sort of uh, could see more or less of depending on, uh, you know, the actual group that's, you know, doing the strategy and practice. But basically, what I'm saying is that there's kind of two poles of democratic socialist, broadly speaking, electoral strategy out there today. And one of them, which I think is much more uh, prominent in the progressive world and has been historically uh, uh, much more prevalent in uh, U.S. electoral progressive and radical organizing is what I call the coalition path, right? And this is not to say that um, people that take this path are going to be best friends with the Democratic leadership. That's definitely not true at all. There are people that are often primarying centrist Democrats and people that uh, see uh, a, a need to shift the party far to the left and have it represent the needs uh, and interests of working people. But in general, the idea is that we as progressives are and socialists, democratic socialists, are basically the junior partner in a broader progressive coalition uh, that comprises basically the entire Democratic Party. Um, and we should be essentially embracing our democraticness and saying that the rest of the people in the party, uh, the centrist Democrats, the DLC, the Blue Dogs, that they, they're not real Democrats. We are the true progressive FDR, great society Democrats. And we want to take back the party and turn it into something that actually serves the needs of working people. So sometimes we're going to fight against the mainstream of the party. We're going to challenge uh, for leadership in you know, local, state uh, committees, etc. cetera. Uh, we're going to try to make the platform of the party at the state and national level more progressive, more radical. Um, but we are also partners in a coalition, and we are strategic allies necessarily with the rest of the Democratic Party. And if we want to build majority coalitions around, you know, uh, higher minimum wage or uh, Green New Deal or Medicare for all or whatever it is, we, we shouldn't try to alienate people in the mainstream of the Democratic Party. We should try to show them that all these policies are actually in their own interest, electorally speaking, and try to bring them into a broad coalition uh, to create progressive change, right? So we push them when we have to, uh, and we build coalitions with them uh, to the greatest extent that we can. That's the coalition strategy. And this is sort of groups that you could see everybody from the Justice Democrats, our revolution. You know, there's a million other groups out there that have taken this approach. And the other approach that I uh, sort of lay out here is what I call the, the confrontational approach. And again, uh, so if you read the piece, I, you, you shouldn't uh, get the sense that there's no confrontation in the coalitional approach, as I said. But basically, this approach is confrontational in the sense that it says the Democratic Party establishment, the big donors, you know, the sort of capitalists, you know, at the heart of the donor class in the party are the enemies of working class, you know, electoral socialist movements. And we need to see them as such. We need to call them out as such. And we need to build 
a, a constituency of working class voters who are disillusioned basically with the Democratic Party, which has betrayed them for decades, you know, has thrown them under the bus, you know, over all kinds of different policies uh, over the few last few decades and has become totally ensconced um, in the world of uh, sort of the corporate donors who, you know, they believe uh, sort of centrist Democrats uh, serve above all else. And so what we need to do is challenge corporate Democrats at all levels. And we need to say that the Democratic Party is totally dominated by these folks. And we need a real working class alternative, basically. And so we should actually be building an alternative organization, uh, one that sort of doesn't even deal at all with the machinations of the formal party structure of the Democratic Party, that is like the, the city committees and the state committees, that doesn't really try to influence internal Democratic uh, politics very much and only uses the Democratic Party for one reason and one reason alone, and that's the ballot line, right? Because for a lot of reasons that we can talk about, running as a third party candidate doesn't make a lot of sense in most, in most contexts. And so this approach basically says, we wanna declare war on the Democratic Party. We see centrist Democrats as enemies. We might have to build alliances, you know, tactically uh, under certain circumstances, but generally we wanna build a new block of genuinely radical, anti-capitalist elected officials uh, to, based on a new broad coalition of working class voters who have been disillusioned with the democratic process, bring them into the electoral process as Bernie Sanders tried valiantly to do uh, in 2016 and 2020 to, to not as much success as we'd like. And this could be the basis for a genuine alternative over time to the democratic party as we've known it uh, you know, since the 1930s, basically. So that's sort of it. Uh, you know, in a nutshell. Me and Megan were on a call with Sacramento DSA last week to talk about our book, Bigger Than Bernie. And we had a kind of funny experience where somebody asked us a question. Uh, I think it, it, the first question was in response to uh, your article, which neither of us had read yet, but uh, they asked us about basically like, which is it? Like the, which which path should we be taking? The, the coalition one or the confrontation one? And I answered in theoretical terms, I guess. I was like, I lean far more towards the confrontational one. I think that is our job as democratic socialists to be the kind of tip of the spear coming from the left. But then later, someone asked me about specific case studies that we have in the book. And I talked about uh, case studies like in New York, where the uh, DSA has made uh, incredible gains electorally, but they've done so in coalition with uh, groups like the Working Families Party and other uh, sort of uh, social democratic left labor type institutions. And I was saying this, this is how they did that. This is how it worked in Chicago, where I live. It's where it's worked, how it's worked in many different places. And so uh, I, I was essentially making the case uh, for more of the coalition style uh, approach to these things, despite about 20 minutes earlier, having just advocated the confrontational approach. Do you feel that kind of like, tension between on the one hand feeling like it is our job to really kind of be at the at the vanguard of, of uh, you know declaring war on the reactionary parts of the democratic uh, party but then on the other hand seeing the need to in, in many contexts work with uh, other coalition partners especially coalition partners that you know have a working class constituency yeah no i mean that's that's a really uh important question and i think that a couple things we should keep a couple of things in mind. One is that we're talking about these sort of broad strategies. They, they, they will mean things a lot different, like at the local level versus say the state level or the national level. And so if we're talking about coalition versus confrontation in the case of, you know, in this country, not in New York, but in most, in, in most municipalities in this country, you have nonpartisan municipal elections, right? And so um, it's easier to imagine uh, sort of insurgents getting into office and, you know, uh, taking some seats on a city council, a nonpartisan city council, or a city council that's just a one-party uh, dominated city council, uh, like in New York or Chicago, um, and you know, being able to uh, express or you know show a sort of uh, radical identity, uh, being candidates from uh, a group like DSA or or another sort of group that's totally independent of the Democratic Party, except for you know, their use of the ballot line 
um, and having some real leverage. And I think we've already seen this in, in New York and, and, you know, um, and in Chicago, you know, as these new electoral blocks have come out. Um, so I think that that makes sense. But um, when we scale it up to the national level, though, and we start to think about how these sort of blocks could work in sort of confrontation versus coalitional uh, terms, then I think the stakes of one approach or the other get a lot higher. And so if you get into the, if you have a block of elected officials in Congress and you are basically saying, we're declaring war on the Democratic Party and we don't want anything to do with the structures of the party. We don't want anything to do with, um, you know, playing, you know, in within the rules of the party, which is to say supporting other Democrats, um, you know, in electoral campaigns, even ones we don't really agree with. If you start to go down that direction as a radical block outside of the Democratic Party establishment, then you're never going to get committeeship appointments that are important. You're never going to be able to actually bring home the bacon, so to speak, for your constituencies at home. You're going to be totally alienated and isolated, uh, you know, from any sort of decision making in Congress. And of course, that sort of thing can happen at state level uh you know, in the state legislature as well, and also in municipal races. But I think the stakes get higher and higher, you know, as we move up from local to state to national levels. And so I think taken to its logical extreme, the confrontational strategy actually does pose a major, major risk to groups that are trying to, uh, you know, bring real benefits to working class communities. And if they're not careful, they can burn bridges in a major way. And I think it's honestly too early to see you know, how this is going to play out in New York or Chicago, uh, because there's sort of like a almost like a contradictory sort of um, situation there where the DSA and other sort of radical, uh, you know, insurgent candidates are walking a really fine line between saying F you to the Democratic establishment altogether and finding ways to work with them uh, strategically and tactically and how far they can push the envelope is something that I don't think is particularly clear. And in some ways, the question of how far can you push the envelope is actually the, the real question. So it's not really confrontation versus coalition. It's like, how how confrontational can you go without undermining your own uh, objectives is essentially the, the real question. I think that's a great way to put it. It's a question of envelope pushing instead of necessarily one or the other. And I, I think that, you know, you've spoken a little bit about alienating other, you know, alienating Democratic Party um, leaders, politicians, boxing yourself out of committee appointments, making it hard to build coalitions with other electeds and so on. But there's also this other problem that you mentioned um, at some point in your piece that I, I wanted to highlight because I think it's actually a very big problem. It's one that I've sort of noticed anecdotally. And I'm not entirely sure what to do with as a proponent of a more confrontational style than you see advocated by, for example, the Working Families Party or the Justice Democrats. I'm not really sure what to do with the fact that, as you say, uh, a lot of the voters who identify really strongly with the Democratic Party are also the ones who are the staunchest proponents of our agenda. Um, it's not as it's not as easy as, you know, we've got our people who are mad at the Democratic Party and they want Medicare for all and we can take them and go home. On the contrary, um, those people are often, uh, I think, paradoxically and confusing confusingly, uh, most dedicated to the Democratic Party. A lot of them themselves see themselves as, as being engaged in a process of realigning the Democratic Party, a fight for the soul of the Democratic Party. And furthermore, because these people are just more politically conscious and they're more clued into politics, uh, I think a lot of them are, are tend to be more scared of Republicans. Um, maybe they're watching more closely. Maybe they kind of understand the threat of the Republican Party as being really extreme. And so their dissatisfaction with the Democratic Party is not um, with the Democratic Party, not, for example, pursuing Medicare for all is not exactly a pretext to take them and walk, march into a new party. And also we run the risk of, if we're too confrontational, actually alienating the people who are going to be most sympathetic to our agenda. So what do you think we should do with that information when we're weighing our options? I mean, that is an extremely hard question that I think um, we sort of dance around um a lot in on the left and you know we try to we come up with things like oh well we just need to bring in more sort of disillusioned uh non-voters or low propensity voters which of course is what bernie wanted to do 
um, didn't do very much. And even in a lot of the places where you've seen insurgent candidates at the, uh, you know, in, in state house races and in congressional races, they've also not really brought in, you know, as far as we can tell, although I think there's a lot of additional work to be done in sort of looking at some of these races in more detail, but there's not a lot of evidence that anybody's been super successful at doing that. Um, it's partly because it's like one of the hardest things you can possibly do is bring in low propensity voters. There's a reason why they don't vote very much because they don't believe in the system and they are super alienated from it. And you can't just go around, even if you're Bernie Sanders and say, hey, I got a plan for you. Historically, the only time folks like that actually get engaged is not when you have a great policy that you're promoting, but rather when you have already implemented a policy that they benefit from and they fucking love. And then they'll maybe they'll support you. But just having a great policy program that you haven't already implemented, that's hardly enough to convince folks that they should jump on some sort of radical, you know, outsider, uh, you know, bandwagon. And I think, you know, there are some cases of uh, people doing really amazing, like deep organizing work to try to work with these communities, like disillusioned, disaffected working class uh, communities to try to show them the importance of getting involved in politics, like the William Barber's, like, you know, the poor people's campaign, they've been doing a lot of amazing kind of work like that, but it's extremely slow going, right? And it's not gonna be the kind of thing that can build these massive constituencies that we're talking about. So that means we're essentially stuck with the people that already are engaged, like you said, Megan, and how do we bring those people over uh, to our side by attacking Democrats vehemently and saying that this party that they, strongly identify with and love uh, is not really a party that uh, they should be a part of. Um, it's a really hard question. And I think there's a legitimate answer, which could simply be there's no way to do it. And like the Justice Democrats just have a better strategy because it's based in reality and that we are being too optimistic in our assumptions. I think that's an actual possibility that we're just wrong. Um, but I think maybe uh, there's a way to thread the needle such that we're just really, really careful as much as we can be to be confrontational against centrist Democrats and against, you know, big donors in the party. Uh, but we try to sort of tone down the rhetoric against the institutional, the institution of the party itself. So we don't have, so we can try to form DSA. We can try to form an alternative organization that has runs our own candidates and has its own identity, but we can do that in a way that's less vehemently um, antagonistic towards the Democratic Party as an institution. Although the problem with that is that most people in DSA or people that agree with the strategy of confrontation wouldn't like that at all and would think that we would basically be selling out uh, and, you know, using a strategy that, uh, you know, the sort of more, you know, centrist or, you know, like less radical folks in Justice Democrats or Working Families Party are already doing. Uh, so I don't know how to fix the problem. This is something that I think we really, really need to work on. And, uh, you know, it's in, unless we come up with a better answer, you know, we're going to have a lot of trouble, uh, you know, continuing to theorize and act on this confrontational approach. Well, you know, similar to what I was saying previously about how I was essentially uh, arguing for both approaches uh, in the same conversation, uh, in, in the conversation that Megan and I had with Sacramento DSA. Uh, I feel like that has been DSA's approach to institutions like the Working Families Party, for example. Like the really exciting uh, wins that have come at the electoral level in New York have often been done in coalition with the Working Families Party. But on the other hand, when the Working Families Party uh, didn't endorse Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, Bhaskar Sankara and I wrote an op-ed in Jacobin uh, really harshly denouncing them for doing that. And we've only been doing this in this reborn socialist movement for less than four years. Uh, but based on what we have done over that time frame, we have managed to uh seemingly you know we, we've, we've certainly pissed off some people in the working families party uh who continue to <laughs> want to wage war on jacobin they're they're out there they're not hard to find uh but in general there seems to be a good uh you know understanding between the two that like sometimes there are going to be uh, routes that they take where we are going to be unafraid to say you know this was the wrong route to take and really like say that that you know be confrontational with them in 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 articulating that they've 
you know, strayed too far from the confrontational approach. But then other times when uh, we work in close coalition with them uh, towards mutually beneficial aims. Yeah, no, I, mean, I think in a practical sense, that's what you're, you know, that's what we just have to do. But when we sort of zoom out and we say, okay, let's think about the sort of day in, day out way that we're uh, engaging in our relationships with, you know, our coalition partners and with the Democratic Party as well. Um, how do we think about those approaches with respect to our broader strategic orientation and our longer term goals? And I think basically, if we're, it kind of depends on what our goals are, right? Like, if you're somebody who thinks that um, the only thing we need to be worrying about right now is as socialists is in the electoral front is just, you know, trying to win, trying to get a foothold somewhere and trying to make a name for ourselves and try to be more visible um, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, but we don't really need to think about sort of, well, how is this going to lead to us actually winning majoritarian support for socialist politics, either at the state or the national level? Then I think these questions aren't as important. Yeah, because in a day to day basis, like you're right, like we just sort of have to navigate one versus the other. And when we think about how could an approach like this taken to its logical conclusion actually be successful, you know, in winning a state house or, you know, winning control at the national level in Congress one day or something like that, then I think that these problems become more severe. And when we have to kind of think about them, like if you if you wanted to see DSA or, you know, a coalition of DSA like organizations that were trying to pursue a confrontational approach win, uh, you know, real power, you know, and the capacity to influence uh, legislation in a profound way in the New York State Assembly or, you know, in, in, a st in any state house. Um, we would be forced either to choose, I think, between really moving in the coalitional approach because we'd have to be more pragmatic to build, you know, sort of like sustainable um, legislative coalitions and we'd have to be willing to make more compromises essentially. Or we'd have to say, we're gonna basically burn our bridges and we're gonna take a super outsider populist approach and we're gonna bank on the possibility that there's enough alienated, disaffected voters out there who hate the way things are going currently and will be willing to, to basically support us precisely because we're being confrontational with the Democratic Party, right? And I think that's a gamble that we'd have to take. Right now, we don't really have to take it anywhere because we don't have the capacity or the potential for, you know, uh, fighting for genuine control over any sort of elected body, uh, except maybe like the Somerville City Council. I can see that. There's only like 11 councilors there. Maybe we get five of them, you know, that kind of thing. But beyond like small municipalities or something like that, it's not going to happen. So, you know, the, the stakes aren't quite as high. But that's why I was just trying to push us out to think about, okay, well, what's our longer term goal? What are we trying to accomplish? And if we think about, you know, our goals um, in that broader sense, then these sort of divisions or these sort of uh, strategic uh, choices become kind of starker, I think. One of the benefits of the confrontational strategy over the coalitional strategy has to do with disciplining um, coalition partners or just other Democrats, depending on how you want to categorize them, uh, to the party's, you know, party party program and and the the party line, right? Like even if we were to succeed in, um, you know, getting Medicare for all written in the Democratic Party platform, it's very difficult to um, hold Democrats accountable. There was actually an effort between as you write in the piece between the 1950s and the 1970s that aims to sort of implement democratic reforms within the party itself. Can you talk a little bit about what those efforts were, um, why they ultimately didn't work and whether or not there's any possibility that we could revisit that, but more successfully, or whether that's just kind of a waste of time? Yeah, I mean, there were a lot of efforts led by, uh, you know, key leaders in the, in the CIO, basically people like Walter Ruther, you know, uh, and other important, you know, left uh, liberal labor leaders who were trying to basically deal with the hegemony of the Southern Democrats, basically in the party, uh, trying to, because because seniority was 
Southern Democrats were in Congress before all the rest of the Democrats came in with FDR. So they had control over all these committees. And so they were the all these liberals were beating their heads over how do we deal with this? Because they can just get elected and then do whatever the hell they want. Uh, there's no they don't have to adhere to any platform whatsoever. And there were multiple efforts. There was a report that was put out in 1950 uh, by the American. I believe it was by the American Political Science Association, but I could be wrong about that, which basically said, like, one of the biggest problems with our democracy right now is that we don't have responsive parties. Right. We don't have parties with clear platforms that can be uh, where the politicians are accountable to the platform and they're not participatory at all. And so there were various efforts uh, you know, by progressive forces to try to change the rules of the party uh, in the 50s, which were uh, failures because there was just it was a dead letter, right? Because they just didn't have enough juice in the party. Then there was another round uh, of attempts called in the called the New Politics Movement, um, started in the late 60s in the wake of the disaster, which was the 1968 Democratic Convention, which essentially. Uh, said that, you know, the, these segregationist uh, Democrats from Mississippi would be seated. Oh, sorry, that was 1964. But in 1968, when people that were, you know, uh, McCarthy supporters, uh, you know, weren't even allowed into the building uh, and where Humphrey, who had gotten like 2% of the primary vote, you know, just like installed as the candidate, even though a vast majority of people had voted for Kennedy or had voted for uh, McCarthy. And so this basically said, uh, this created a crisis in the party. And there was a, a, you know, a commission, the McGovern Fraser Commission, which basically said, we're now going to have midterm conventions, which is to say, like, in, like now the, the party just has every convention every four years. They were going to have midterm conventions where, you know, they could uh, every two years, you know, talk about the party platform um, to try to maintain more cohesion to it. They instituted much stronger control over the primary process by, uh, you know, primaries that are actually, you know, the vote of everybody in the party rather than just decisions by, you know, bosses in the party. Um, and they took a number of other steps to try to make the party more responsive. And, you know, they made some gains, but basically, again, because of the weakness of the left and the liberals in the party, or and or because of the you know extraordinary power of the sort of corporate uh, you know donors in the party, um, but it wasn't just them because the, the mainstream labor movement was against this uh, process as well. Um, they could only take it so far, right? And so by and also McGovern loses in a landslide in 1972, and that totally destroys the capacity of the left uh, to have any real credibility within the party. Uh, he was a very progressive candidate. Uh, and so gradually the sort of uh, mainstream party uh, takes over again, re regains its control, gets rid of the midterm uh, process, institutes in the early 80s the system of superdelegates that we all know and love, um, et cetera, et cetera. So they did make progress, but they didn't have the power to, to go any further. Um, and if anybody's interested in this, Adam Hilton is a guy, is a political scientist who's written some really great works on this. I encourage you to check out. Well, including in Jacobin, which I can uh, link to in the show description of his uh, piece from 2016 about uh, new politics. One of the reasons that you cite for why this effort wasn't successful is that progressives who were pushing for reform in the Democratic Party, they couldn't make a credible threat to exit the party if their demands weren't met. And this seems to be a problem that we face today, obviously. And part of the confrontational strategy is the idea is to build up our forces to the point where that threat can be credible, which is to say to build a constituency that we have confidence would follow us, or at the very least, that we feel that we could make a bluff and it would be taken somewhat seriously by right. Democratic Party leadership, because we have a constituency in our corner that like, conceivably in some universe could walk out with us into some sort of alternative party formation, which we have no nowhere near that now and they didn't then. Um, but one of the issues that I really want to bring up here is that this doesn't just depend on us, whether or not we're successful in this regard doesn't just depend on what happens. Very in, little depends on Yeah, us. <laughs> right. It doesn't, and it also just doesn't even depend on what, not only what happens in the left wing of the Democratic Party, but the Democratic Party at all. I mean, what's happening in the Republican Party also makes a huge difference here because as the Republican Party gets more and more sort of like sadistic, like openly sadistic and, and ridiculous, I think that people's willingness to walk out into an alternative formation uh, drops and the spoiler effect becomes more uh, potent 
and that's my concern in any case. Um, so what's what's happening in the Republican Party or to what extent should we keep an eye on what's happening in the Republican Party? How does it factor into all of this? I mean, before you answer that, Jared, I, I was telling Megan earlier that uh, I saw a poll one or two days ago that showed uh, the question was like number of coronavirus deaths acceptable question mark and it was like 90 percent of democrats unacceptable 10 percent acceptable republicans 53 percent acceptable 47 percent unacceptable and i you know megan and i wrote a book about how we should take a confrontational approach to the democrats when i saw that i was just like my god they're like what 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 could we even do we can't do class politics in a in an environment where the party that's running the show is saying like bodies piling up to the sky keep them going like that's fine so yeah megan's question is a really crucial one i mean clearly in the short term there's nothing we could possibly do to overcome that problem right i mean let's imagine that the movement today had the strength that it had in the early 1940s or the late 1930s, which is to say a hell of a lot more than it does currently. Even if that were true, and, and the labor movement decided right now that it was pissed off with the neoliberal Dems, I mean, obviously there's a lot of other things that would be different, So, but just assuming that everything else were the same, if they walked out and tried to form a third party and then handed the election to Trump, that would destroy working class politics for quite a long time. And that's even if you had 30% of the workforce, you know, unionized and you had extraordinarily higher levels of class consciousness than than you have today, right? So this is not something that we can overcome. We couldn't even overcome it if we were a hell of a lot stronger in the short term, right? Um, so I think that, you know, basically um, there's no way that's just not going to happen at the national level. We can imagine it happening at, at the municipal level, as it already is happening to a certain extent, right? There's a lot more opportunities in the short term at the municipal level, maybe even at the state level in, you know, solid blue states like in a Massachusetts or in a New York or, you know, which have, you know, you know, lots of shitty Democrats in the leadership that stop all kinds of great stuff from happening. I can imagine that. But at this national level, not going to happen. And I think that uh, what we need to to be able to generate massive uh, appeal for our sort of politics is to have some of them implemented. I kind of think that that's the case. Just, you know, we need to, or we need to have something going on at the federal level that allows working class people to have a to broader imagination around what's possible, right? If Bernie were president, that would be easy, but he's not. So if we were able to pass, you know, some sort of new, uh, more expansive labor legislation that made it easier for folks to organize, or if we were to pass, you know, some version of massively expanded healthcare expansion or something like that, you know, those are things that could, you know, really change the way people think about political opportunity and possibility. And I think that given the current moment, which is an economic catastrophe that's probably worse than we've seen since the Great Depression in this country, uh, this is a moment of flux. This is a sort of critical juncture, so to speak, where the ordinary rules of the game get loosened. They don't get suspended, but they get loosened. And I think that, you know, we have the potential to push uh, for sorts of changes that uh, are not radical changes, but are important progressive reforms that if we get them passed, uh, can change the sort of political playing field and allow us to have broader possibilities for radical socialist organizing down the road. But in the short to medium term, oh, I guess in the next, you know, four to two to four years or whatever, you know, I don't see anything that's possible along those lines at the at the national level. But I'm happy to be proven wrong and I hope that I am. I want to circle back to one thing that you talked about, which is the idea that if we implement one or two really good reforms, even in a kind of like coalitional arrangement that um, that really tr materially transform working class people's lives, then we're going to generate new constituencies that are going to make new types of political advances possible. And I, I really do uh, believe that. And I think that the best article to read if you want to get a better sense of why that might be the case is this article that I constantly cite. Um, it's by Robbie Nelson. It's called in Engines of Solidarity, and it's in Jacobin. In fact, we named the chapter of me and Micah's book after it because it's a foundational concept for us. And another place to look is, is you know, this is not a newly created thing, but the post... The, the post office, you know, the, like the fact that there's this mass popular mobilization to save the post office right now, I think is a testament to like what you said, even depoliticized people or even people who are not thinking 
through the political implications of it can actually be mobilized to defend something that works for them and that they love. Yeah, I think that's true about like the Postal Service, for example. You're right that people come. I was at a Postal Service protest on Saturday and the number of honks, like the ratio of honks per car uh, that was driving <laughs> by was like nothing I've ever experienced uh, well, at, a, at a protest before. But on the whole, people really don't have the faith that that basically that 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 much of their lives can change at all through politics at this point and obviously bernie's campaign you've alluded to this jared uh was a gamble that we could inspire people to actually believe again that that change was possible that politics could make their lives better um, and we saw some really hopeful signs of that in 2016, but actually in 2020, it, it felt like we actually moved we moved backwards on that front. I mean, clearly Bernie's theory of change for how that was going to come about uh, didn't materialize. Um, and you know, I was I was anecdotally like when I went to Iowa knocking on doors for Bernie, and I would talk to people. Maybe, I, maybe I've said this on the podcast before, but uh, when I talk to people about bernie and his platform people who were not political junkies you know working class people in in pretty rough neighborhoods and pretty rough houses uh and i would describe the platform nobody was like no i don't think i deserve health care they were just like looking at me like it's sound yeah these little these pipe dreams that you're building for yourself sound very nice but like there was no real faith that they uh, would actually be able that, that any of us would actually be able to win these things that would that would change their lives and uh, coming out of uh, Bernie's 2020 campaign, it almost seems like we've 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 sunk deeper into that morass, both with the with the failure of Bernie, but with everything else, you know, with coronavirus and and everything else. I mean, the the the, the uh, expectations were raised ever so slightly by Bernie's two campaigns, and now they've been uh, tanked uh, yet again, and it's really hard to build an alternative politics or build a, a progressive politics of any kind when that's the case. Wait, do you really think people, I mean, I hear people saying this a lot that like somehow like it's like so much worse now than it was like before because everybody's been so disillusioned by, by, by what happened with Bernie. I mean, I don't know. Like that's not the way I feel actually. I mean, I, I do feel like, like I just said, we have some really important limitations that mean that we're not going to be able to build a socialist party of, you know, any significance in the next like, you know, five years or whatever. But uh you know, that wasn't much of a possibility before either. Well, actually, the person who says this the most is Micah. You must be in a despairing mood today, because I hear you say all the time that we're actually on much better footing <laughs> than we were before during 2020. No, it's objectively true. Yes, that's that's true. I and, and the truth is I am in a slightly more despairing mood than normal. I just I just am, am coming to terms recently uh, with just a, a sense that I I personally have like I feel like the long-term tectonic plates are shifting in the right direction but in the short term that there are actually are people some days including myself who are actually more despairing about the possibility of social change ever happening than ever and and to go back to your article I mean if if that is the case that would seem to indicate that would give you a little bit of pause before you sort of like pushed all the chips in on the confrontational strategy because the uh, potential rewards from a confrontational strategy are potentially uh, much higher uh, but the the potential of failure is also uh, extremely high in our and if we were to fail we would sort of like uh, we would, the, the, the risks are high and the rewards are high, I guess you could say. Right, right. No, I, I just want to be clear. Like what I have in mind here is like, like literally uh, an extreme version of this, uh, of this, of this confrontational approach is something that's occurred many times in the world, just not in this country. Right. Like you think about, I study Latin American politics, right. And in the 1990s and early 2000s, there were a number of countries that had two to three party political systems that were relatively stable for, you know, a couple of decades in Venezuela's case, you know, four or five decades, uh, you know, that there was an alternation of power between sort of center left, center right parties that at one point had, you know, pretty strong voter identification of a majority, sometimes, you know, a huge percentage of the electorate. Um, and then over time uh, in the 18 in the 1980s and 90s, they start to implement all kinds of neoliberal austerity plans. Uh, their their budgets dry up. You know, uh, economies tank. They can't provide uh, the kinds of things that they used to, and they go into crisis. And you see a drop in support from these parties. From like you know, the main two parties got eighty percent of the vote in 
you know, one year and then two years later, they get 10% of the vote combined, right? That's the kind of thing that I'm talking about here. And it's like, uh, that can happen. And if you're Hugo Chavez in 1994, you know, in Venezuela, and you're saying, I think these parties, you know, I think they're going to go down. Like they're still getting 50% of the vote maybe combined, but there's, there's a major powerful trajectory negative here. And if I go out there and just say to hell with the whole thing, I'm not saying we should do exactly what Hugo Chavez did, but just as a kind of similar example, like, like to hell with the whole system, in case of I and those, like that could work. And that's the sort of logical extreme of the confrontational strategy, right? And I guess like the question is, you know, when we take a gamble on something along those lines in terms of like a real alternative, you know, we have to have a theory of either Democratic voters are going to say to hell with it. Uh, we're ready for an alternative, which we're definitely not seeing that yet. Um, or we need to have uh, disaffected and disillusioned voters come in uh, and and become a new constituency for us. I think both of those things can happen. And I think, like you said, Micah, like we're, we're seeing the tectonic plate shifting. So I don't think that the fact that we've had two election cycles where this has failed suggests that it can't win. I think that we are seeing these longer trends which point in positive directions for our kind of politics. Uh, but it's gonna be pretty slow going. We're gonna have to you know, experiment in different places. I think we need to be trying to find ways to run candidates in blue and purple districts to show that this sort of this sort of politics needs to be taken more seriously, uh, you know, by Democrats who often say the reason they have to be centrist is because they can't win in red and purple states if they if they don't do that. So if we can actually show that, you know, a really you know solid uh, economic populist Bernie style message is really competitive in places where Democrats currently think only blue dogs can win, then that would that would actually have the capacity to affect the Democratic Party in some important ways. And it would give us the tools to learn how can we be more successful? How can we sort of tilt the, the scales uh, in a way that would bring in more of these disaffected voters in a way that would be more appealing to, uh, you know, current Democrats? You know, we just have to experiment. Unfortunately, you know, this is not uh, something that's as you know, day and night, as as uh, we were hoping it might have been uh, for a moment, a brief moment in February of this year. Uh, but I don't think all hope is lost by any stretch of the imagination. And, you know, Micah has talked about his like experiences with people not really taking the bait or feeling like, you know, political change was possible at doors. And I certainly had that experience, too. But I also and this is just completely anecdotal, but I also had the experience of organizing for Bernie on the uh, Las Vegas strip for the strip caucuses oh, yeah. and, you know, having, com having conversations with mostly uh, Latina and um, Asian immigrant house cleaners who in the course of a single conversation made a commitment to show up and cast their vote for Bernie Sanders and specifically for Medicare for all in a context where they were, you know, being agitated against that and to cast their vote for solidarity. And it was like, I've had that experience and it was honestly really beautiful. It was probably the most, the most inspiring political experience of my life to date. And it's hard for me to come away from that. And again, it's completely anecdotal, but it's hard for me to come away from that thinking that there isn't something here that we can work with, right? Like, I do think that even though it didn't you know, yield the White House after the first two go-arounds, there's, there's definitely something to the, the, the strategy of uh, turning out low propensity voters with a message of economic equality and redistribution and, and political equality as well, um, that, I think, that I think has some, some real potential. Jared, part of the kind of the, the foundation of this whole conversation of, of all strategy discussions in American politics uh, has to do with the basic fact that we are stuck with the Democrats and that we don't have a real working class party. Certainly the, the way that the argument for like how we're going to get, build that party someday uh, is usually made by people who are, who are going all in on advocating the confrontational uh, approach. Now we all know that the, the full confrontational start that party now approach has uh, not yielded a workers party uh, despite uh, many attempts to will them into being because of the structural barriers towards doing so. But um, I guess my question for you is uh, if we, it, it, it seems to me like the, co the confrontation 
is going to be the only way that would eventually someday down the road we don't know when lots of things that have to change but someday creating that kind of party and that if we go all in on the or not if we go all in but if we lean too far in the direction of uh coalitions then whatever would need to start to line up to bring us towards being able to create an actual working class party in this country wouldn't come into being do you think that's accurate yeah i do and i think the two responses are number one is the possibility that this is just like what we want to see happen is just never going to happen because it's like one of the hardest things that's ever been tried to, you know, build a socialist uh, politics, mass politics in the United States. You know, there's a, the null hypothesis here is that this is uh, never going to happen. And we got to take that, you know, we have to like recognize that fact because there are major, major, major obstacles. Um, but the, if we're not just going to go down the nihilism route uh, and we still want to be socialist, then, um, which we all do, obviously, um, then I would say the reason why it's important to consider uh, the strategic implications of the coalition versus confrontation have a lot to do with sort of the timing of um, the emergence or the strengthening of this sort of outsider political movement, political party, and the timing emergence of a mass base uh, that would be actually open to its politics. And I think that the one of the key determinants of whether or not the, the party information will have the base it needs to actually uh, become a mass party uh, or a mass political formation of some kind is determined a lot by institutional uh, and political factors that are going to be shaped by policy choices that are taken at the national level, essentially, right? In other words, like what we were talking about before, uh, if the corona crisis, you know, it generates this massive economic catastrophe, which it's already doing and hurting so many millions of people, that's going to create policy space, potentially, at least a lot more than there was before, for sweeping kinds of progressive legislation that if they're not totally technocratic and neoliberal in the way that they're set up so that people don't identify, you know, the, the people that gave them to them uh, with the thing that they've gotten, like Obamacare, like nobody you know, actually associated Obama with that because it was so complicated. Uh, if there are things that are straightforward and that can be bread and butter issues that can affect working people, um, that can generate new coalitions, new constituencies, that can create new opportunities for working class organization that can put us on a, you know, qualitatively different playing field to try out the co or the confrontational strategy in a different context. Um, and we just don't have that opportunity right now. So, you know, I think we should continue experimenting the confrontational strategy in the, especially at the local level and in some cases at the state level and try to see, you know, what works and what doesn't work. And I think we need to dig in a lot more to sort of the way the way these sort of campaigns work and the Bernie style campaigns work and and a lot of the sort of mechanics of I don't know why some people do a lot better than others. Um, but as a sort of broader issue of like, you know, our movement uh, being this sort of national scale confrontational project. I mean, that's something that I don't think can happen uh, in a serious way or necessarily should happen because, you know, we don't want to undermine the possibility of winning those sorts of reforms that we might need to put us on stronger footing down the road. I don't think that that project is something that can really happen, you know, for a while. But like I said, things are changing really fast. Um, who knows what can happen? We're in a lot different place now than I'd ever imagined we would have been six months ago. So, and I understand that, you know, historical time is very funny um, and its rhythms, you know, change rapidly often. Uh, but, you know, that's sort of uh, where I see it right now. Jared, thanks a lot. That was great. That was awesome. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it.